The 90s and 2000s were not an easy time to be a woman in office. And even here in Massachusetts, it was a small club. So while we look around now at the suite of women heading up the state's constitutional offices, our first female governor found herself in the role through a game of political musical chairs. I'm Jennifer Smith, a reporter with Commonwealth Beacon, and today I'm joined by former Governor Jane Swift. Swift, a Republican, became the state's first female governor in 2001, after Governor Paul Cellucci stepped down to become President Bush's ambassador to Canada. But she was no political neophyte, having been elected to state Senate a decade earlier at the age of 25, later running unsuccessfully for Congress and working in the Weld administration until being elected lieutenant governor. Swift's years in elected office were marked by the normal political scrutiny, plus a fog of -of turn-of-the-century skepticism that a young woman or a new mother could do the job. In the last two decades, the state and its media have started to look backward and inward a little bit, considering the way that different genders and their roles are scrutinized and discussed. But Swift's presence these days is most keenly felt in her education advocacy, her commentary on the perception of women in public life, and her openness about grieving her husband Chuck, who died almost two years ago after a long struggle with kidney disease. We're going to talk about her time in office and her work since, but also about how personal and public roles often blend together, especially when birth and death are involved. Governor Jane Swift, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me this morning. So let's start broadly. Has the way we talk about women and mothers in government changed? I think it's totally changed. It is no longer like being the bearded lady in the circus uh, when a woman has children or a woman runs for elected office. I think it's fantastic that it is the norm that we have women serving in statewide office in Massachusetts, that we have women in our congressional delegation. None of those things uh, were the norm when Evelyn Murphy and then myself and several others uh, were breaking through some glass ceilings and suffering the uh, deep cuts uh, that happen when you burst through those glass ceilings. So you kind of referenced this, of course. So back in 1990, when you first were elected to the state Senate, you were the youngest woman to ever be elected to the state Senate. And since then, uh, you know, you became a mother twice over while in office, three times over while in office. And since then, you know, almost all of the state constitutional officers, so that's the governor, lieutenant governor, AG, auditor, treasurer, are women. Michelle Wu is Boston mayor, and she, of course, took over from Kim Janey, who was mayor mid-pandemic after Mayor Marty Walsh left to join the Biden administration. Karen Spilka leads the state Senate. But only 31% of our legislature is women. So we do have sort of a mixed bag here. To what extent does having that sort of visible layer of representation matter optically versus kind of realistically? Like, how does that end up impacting people when they think about the role of women in public life? So a few things. First, when folks quote that I was the youngest woman to ever serve in the state Senate, the thing that I want folks to know that I didn't know when I was running, and if I had, I may not have run, is I was also only the 13th woman to ever serve in the Massachusetts Senate. So it was not hard to be the youngest. And that's shocking, extraordinary, and pathetic. Uh, If you think about the fact that Massachusetts has the longest running continuous legislative body in the country. And so that is the piece. Think about how far we've come 
since then. I call, you know, I'm, I'm not quite a baby boomer and I'm totally not a millennial. And I call women of my generation born in the mid 60s, the Title IX generation. Everything changed. Title IX passed when we were in high school. All of a sudden, not only were competitive sports available to us, um, but we had to be treated fairly and equally not only in competitive sports, which does make a huge difference, um, but also in every other aspect of federally funded activities like education. It gave the promise, but not the um, reality of equality. And what you see now with a visible representation at scale of women and what the research tells us is first, it does make a difference. So having role models that look like you, that you can see, and whether you know folks like me like it or not, being in political office is a visible role. Um, having visible role models inspires young people uh, to have aspirations, not just for being a governor or being a U.S. senator, but for leadership. That is important. But what I also see, and my daughters now are all in their 20s and are entering the workforce, the dramatic improvement and change is that women support each other because there's more than one of them in most cohorts of the different um, places that women work. And one of the most depressing aspects for those of us in the Title IX generation is that you encountered two different types of women as we were finding our way toward that promise of equality. You would encounter those women who are willing to help you. And then you would encounter those women who had made the calculation that only one of you could be successful. And so they needed to kill you in order to be successful themselves. And I don't see that by and large with my daughters and their friends and the generation behind them. Um, they have figured out and research is very clear on a board of directors when there's more than one woman at the table it is by far better decision-making and you get the full benefit of that diversity of thought. And I see it in my own leadership groups. I just led a panel at a education technology leader summit with women uh, CEOs of some of our largest education curriculum companies. And they talked about the difference in just how they lead with their almost overwhelmingly female um, leadership teams, but then their boards of directors still are overwhelmingly male and that there's just a different dynamic. And so I think it is, whether it's in politics or in the private sector, it does make a difference to have representation that now is achieving parity. And it both inspires our daughters, but also makes their uh, talents able to be fully utilized by an economy that needs all of us uh, to be contributing to growth, prosperity in this really dynamic and ever-changing world. And when you became acting governor initially, governor, uh, we, we've had lots of conversation about, you know, when we use acting, when we don't, uh, you were in your 30s and you were pregnant. And earlier this year, you wrote a commentary in WBUR about kind of the complicated way you've been reassessed in your time since being in office. So how has the tenor of public life evolved for you in the last 20 years? Because you've remained a public figure even out of office. 
So I've tried not to remain a public figure. Um, I've tried <laughs> to just help those who are in public office. I have absolutely remained committed to improving public education because it's my passion and I continue to believe in the American dream, as corny as that sounds, in that public education and education opportunity uh, is the way that we survive and thrive as a society. Uh, but it is interesting to me that as we have advanced, people have reconsidered um, some of the issues that I faced. I think the pandemic, frankly, which was such a terrible experience, certainly it set back our educational achievement. Um, it, you know, blew apart my daughter's college experience, which is just so sad for me, right? I think so fondly back on my college years. Uh, also very grateful that there were not uh, cell phones with cameras on them, uh, which would have blown apart my political career. Um, but, um, you know, they uh, didn't get those. So many people um, suffered immensely. And I want to just make sure I say that. But when all of a sudden um, we have seen how much work can be done remotely, you look back and say, wait, we had a governor who had young children who lived three hours uh, from Boston and we have no governor's mansion. Was it really such a big deal to have her calling in for a week or a couple of months? Um, well, her right after her babies were born uh, to do the business of the Commonwealth when she was still in the Commonwealth. Um, we had a childcare crisis um, where we talked openly and continue. Frankly, right now we're in the midst of having a childcare cliff because the subsidies that were available to the childcare industry because of COVID are about to expire. Um, and we may again have another challenge and we have openly acknowledged that when women uh, were fleeing the workforce in huge numbers and many men because of the absence of childcare, that was devastating to our economy. So had we been having those conversations when our young female governor who had three young children um, was living those issues herself and it wasn't such an anomaly, uh, it likely would have played out differently. But because, um, and I make this joke and I often make inappropriate jokes and only I find funny, I now have daughters, as I said, in their 20s who point these things out to me. Um, but um, as only daughters, I think, uh, can. Um, but, you know, I was early to market. I, I've done some work with venture capitalists and now I understand that term. And so I was a little bit ahead of my time. But I think, um, you know, no subsequent female governors um, have been in exactly the same time in their life that I was. But I think were we to have one now in exactly the same situation, we would cover it differently um, in less, thankfully, um, and treat it far differently. When I think about the hours we wasted thinking through how to message um, what now would be such a normal thing. Um, you know, everybody's zooming in. Uh, they're voting through Zoom, right? In both the House and the Senate. Um, and we had to go through hours and hours of convincing the governor's council um, that I could call in, you know, on a Wednesday. The last thing that I wanted to hit sort of on this broad topic is 
that there were a lot of choices and balancing acts that you had to kind of engage in that sit at the intersection of the role of a parent and the role of an elected official. And sometimes that came with additional scrutiny. And I'm not sure if you'd call it scandal, but uh, issues around um, having AIDS babysit. But then you were, of course, cleared of improperly using a state helicopter to fly home to your child who was ill. So so those kinds of balancing acts that, that needed to take place. So how do you think about choices at those intersections now? Does it feel like you were held to an unfair standard, a fair standard? Are the mechanisms for enforcement working for parents in that role? I think what's more important is, well, we chose to focus then on the challenges what I hope in retrospect folks focus on, and I was overwhelmed with gratitude a few weeks ago when on a completely unrelated post on LinkedIn, which didn't exist in those days, someone pointed out as I was taking on this new job, um, something that I did as governor, which is I extended full tuition room and board to every child in the foster care system who aged out Um, And I was speaking, so the work I do today is with college students, many of whom are at risk, many of whom are first generation, trying to provide them the same kind of opportunities, frankly, that I have tried to provide to my own children. And that's always guided my thinking around education. What would I want for my own cousins, my own nieces and nephews, my own children? And one of the students I was talking to was a former foster child. And she was talking to me about how the program we run had been a lifesaver to her. And I shared with her this post. And I said, you know, it is the perfect example of why we want people with diverse backgrounds in elected office, because it's not that all the men who served before me were bad people, because many of them were wonderful people whom I admire greatly. It's that because of the scrutiny that I got, And because of the life experiences I was having, I asked a different question than other governors thought to ask. Because when you're governor, there are a million things every single day on your plate. And it's really about the questions that you think to ask that lead to the policies you then choose to focus on. And the question I asked, we were going over a budget and we had extended other previous governors, Governor Salucci had extended tuition reimbursement to children who are adopted out of the foster care system. And I said, what happens to children who age out of the foster care system? Now, did I think of that because I was a mother? Did I think of that because as a mother, I had chosen to get a little more involved in the foster care system and the challenges of children whose own parents couldn't take care of them. I I think I did, right? I just, that was a part of my everyday reality. Anyway, as it turns out in a, at that point, over $20 billion budget to extend a life-changing benefit to those children that no one had ever thought to ask and that I could do without legislative approval. I just signed a stroke of a pen. was a couple million dollars. And what I found out was, well, Our going to college rate for high school seniors in Massachusetts was 70 or 80% of our seniors went on to some post-secondary education. For kids who aged out of the foster system, it was less than 10%. And funding was one of the biggest barriers. 
And so the post I saw on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago was someone who remembered I had done that. And so as many people and many do remember about helicopters and babysitters, um, that actually didn't really fundamentally change anybody's life. But this woman talked about two students she knew whose lives were fundamentally changed because of the education that they had received through that benefit. And so I think that's where I'd like the paradigm shift to be is why do we have people who are having these struggles and balances? Because they'll ask different questions. And yes, at times it may stress them and the system and um, big confession, I am not perfect and I make mistakes. I made mistakes then, both as a governor and as a mother. I make mistakes now as uh, a person who works and as a mother. Um, you do the best that you can, but the perspectives and frankly, even the mistakes that you make lead you uh, to then hopefully govern just a little bit differently because of the questions that you ask and the priorities you pick. And staying on the education topic for a moment, you've started a new job. Uh, you're running around, flying around on this one, uh, running a nonprofit education entity that is part of the Strata Education Collaborative. Um, and so it focuses on college credits during high school, uh, work experiences for college students. So there's a longstanding question about the balance and the role of education, right, is something that can help you make more money, it can expand your mind and capabilities, uh, it helps you understand yourself as part of a broader civil society, teaches self-sufficiently, all of these things. So how are you thinking in your current role about the relationship between education and work and, and achievement later in life? So I think it's up to the academy, so to speak, uh, to think about all those lofty ideas and principles. But my parents um, sent me and my sister and two brothers to college for one reason, and that was a J-O-B. And uh, that uh, job that I got in that career and profession, and they hoped I would get a good job that would make me financially independent. But my dad would speak eloquently about hoping we would live lives of purpose and passion. You know, we're a Catholic family. Um, our values uh, and our commitment to community are very important to us. And I believe I've been able to do that because of my education. And so again, that's what I hope uh, for all children, right? For my own daughters, right? Who I've now gotten through their undergraduate education. My goal for them is a J-O-B, where they can hopefully um, support themselves, um, but also where after they get that good first job, they're on a pathway to finding something they're passionate about and where they have purpose. And one thing I tell lots of young people, um, it is the complexities, and there's a lot of ink spilled on that. I think there's another article out today about how hard it is for young people to be financially um, independent in their 20s. You are not going to find financial security and financial success doing a job you hate. Because to be good at anything and to be successful requires a lot of hard work and expertise. And you don't get good at anything without doing it uh, a lot and paying a lot of attention to it. And I find it really hard. Maybe there are people like who can figure out how to work a lot of hours at stuff they hate. I've not been able to do that ever. And so pursuing your passion, finding things that there you have a sense of purpose, I think makes a lot of sense. Having said all of that, I think it is incredibly hard and it's proven that 
in a dynamic economy where, you know, a year and a half ago, nobody was talking about artificial intelligence. Today, it's all anybody's talking about. Our political system and our education system change very slowly. I think too slowly. I think they could change a little more quickly. But even if they changed a little more quickly, they are not going to keep up with the pace of change in the private sector. And so our organization, Education at Work, and other intermediaries need to be that entity that helps students to get that early career training that leads to the JOB. And I'll let the philosophy professors and the Shakespeare professors and everybody else figure out, right, how it is that you get the other areas of being a good citizen and learning to live with others. Although I will tell you, some of the training that we do for the students we work with are those durable life skills for, you know, first generation um, students who don't have a pain in the neck mother uh, like me, who's all over them telling them what to wear uh, into their interview. Even if it's a Zoom interview, you should be dressed up <laughs> um, and to have, you know, three uh, wind themes for every conversation that you go into and make sure that, you know, you always bring something so you can give people your contact information and what's the difference between an informational interview. But you know, there's just lots of skills um, and experiences that will help individuals to land that really good first job that makes college a good investment. I was at the University of Texas, El Paso, um, speaking to students and administrators and faculty last week. And I've spent time at Arizona State University, and I'm talking to folks in Massachusetts who saw my announcement. Um, colleges know uh, that there are greater expectations from both students and parents and family members about what the outcomes should be. They're struggling to figure out how they produce those outcomes in tandem with the very kinds of learning that you're talking about. And we provide that kind of solution because we can act more quickly, um, because we can partner effectively with the private sector to make those relationships and give those skills um, in a very meaningful way. We've talked about your daughters a few times here, um, and they've come up also in the context of your work around pharmacy benefit managers and your advocacy there. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar, these are intermediaries between pharmaceutical manufacturers and also insurance providers. And you testified earlier this year about the way that PBMs operate that has made accessing prescription drugs difficult for people like your daughter. So tell me a little bit about what you've been pushing for in terms of regulations in the PBM space. As I think uh, many people now know, um, just about two years ago, my husband died. And so even children with enormous financial privilege, which my daughters have, and stable, loving two-parent homes can have enormous challenges. And uh, my daughters had uh, significant emotional challenges uh, during their college career. But for my daughter, Lauren, who's chosen to speak about this publicly, she has dealt with since uh, early childhood a um, challenge in her health, which is being diagnosed with juvenile arthritis after a common virus that almost every child has. And she was 
one of the unlucky few uh, that ended up um, with uh, it triggering an autoimmune disorder of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Um, several years ago, when some of her meds were effective, she had to start using much more expensive biologics. And that's when we started uh, to interact with these pharmacy benefit managers. And last winter, um, their systems melted down to just be really brief, but they didn't have to tell anybody. Um, they didn't have to tell us. And frankly, they lied to us. They lied to her. They lied to me. And for weeks that turned into months, she was without her meds. Um, she is still dealing with the consequences of not having her meds. It is a very gentle uh, and well-orchestrated balance of meds that she takes to keep her health in um, balance. Um, to her credit, she continued to work at her uh, on-campus job uh, and she continues to work at her postgraduate job now. She graduated actually a semester early, but there were mornings um, when she was in enormous pain that she couldn't sleep at night. Um, and when she arrived back in Boston and saw a longtime pediatric uh, rheumatologist, he had uh, did all the measurements and her arthritis had never been as bad as it was when she got here. And it's because they just didn't send her meds for two months. And the thing that was frustrating to us is she had no other way to access those meds. And um, they had no accountability to tell us why that was happening. And so she wasted hours on the phone trying to access her meds. Since then, and since we've gone public, we found out all kinds of other things about this industry that I think are just scandalous. So for folks who take medicines or go to a doctor regularly, you know, many of us have a copay. And you know that if you have insurance, one of the benefits of insurance is they negotiate better rates. And generally you assume that the rate you pay, so if you pay a percentage copay, you assume you pay the percentage of what your negotiated lower rate is um, that your insurance company pays. Well, as it turns out, many times uh, when you're on these really expensive drugs, you're paying the posted rate even though your insurance company is paying the lower rate. So I'll give you an example. Some of Lauren's drugs would cost like $6,000 for a single dose and our 10% copay would be $600. Now we're lucky because we could do that, but I had to plan right after Christmas, every January when you're new, right? Uh, copay and we, we would hit our max out of pocket by February every year, but $600. Now I find out that actually the insurance company wasn't paying $6,000. They were probably paying something like $2,000. But here's a better one. You know, all this stuff that you're reading about uh, folks who are uh, paying all this money for insulin and the expense of insulin. This is another one. Insulin prices have actually been dropping to most insurance companies. But the reason that consumers are paying so much is because the PBMs are not passing along those savings to consumers. So where's that money going? I'm tempted and would like to maybe like regulate them out of business, even though I'm a Republican, because I'm so furious as a mother, but that's not going to happen. But there should be transparency. It shouldn't have taken a former governor having to have her daughter's health imperiled and having to spend hours and hours and hours talking to people all over the country to figure this out. If my daughter got the wrong med handed to her at the pharmacy, 
there would be an investigation. If a patient in a hospital, if a nurse makes a like honest error, there's an investigation. This was a meltdown of a system that they didn't have to tell anybody. And I, for the life of me, I think it's an oversight. And now they're using the billions of dollars that they make because they're overcharging patients to protect themselves with lobbyists so that they don't have to have transparency. And I'm sorry, that's just wrong. And, you know, what about all the kids like Lauren? And she has a, had a friend in her same college who didn't take the expensive meds and had much worse health outcomes because she couldn't afford the $600 in January. That That's just wrong. And so I'm not going to rest, as I have said, until it is fixed. During this entire time, as, as you mentioned, of course, uh, you've been going through kind of the, the process of grieving. Uh, publicly, um, you've talked about it at length. Um, you have a Substack, and for those not familiar, that's a newsletter slash blog that, that you can receive, in which you've spoken a lot about this process. You wrote just a few weeks ago about the way that people try to frame grieving as something that ends. And you said that doesn't really square with the experience. Is there a way that you've found to think about the nature of grieving that's sort of talking about it? has helped with? Has something surprised you about what's come of discussing that openly? Well, I'm just surprised that people read my writing and it does help other people. So I've lost people before my dad died and I've had friends who've lost people. And um, it was actually one of a very close staff member whose daughter died. And it's interesting because she gravitated to my husband who had lost his son years earlier. And um, I, I didn't completely understand it, right? Because uh, she was my uh, close relationship. And she was the person uh, the day Chuck died who said to me, you know, you might benefit from writing down your thoughts. And um, she's always been sort of my North Star and my uh, partner in many things. And so I started writing. I'm not sure why I started to write publicly or put it on a blog. And I didn't really advertise it very much, but it sort of caught on. I talked to a few other women, you know, I'm in this sort of in between, right? I guess I have to go first at everything. Um, I don't have very many friends who have, no many friends who've lost their husband. Um, I started reading these widow books, like, and all the widows were either really young or really old. And I was sort of, again, in between, but on the things that have surprised me is the physicality of the grief that I didn't know, right? And when I thought I was being a good ally to people, I just didn't know. And it never completely goes away. But the message I also have been trying to bring to people, because so many people are distraught, whether it's because of COVID or politics or the terrible things happening in conflicts around the world now, is about hope. Because even amidst the worst things that happen and the grief that doesn't end, there is a beauty and a hope about life um, that I, at times, wasn't sure I could believe in for my daughters or myself. And I'm trying to um, figure out how to capture that sentiment to inspire people because what got me and my daughters through were acts of gratitude, acts of giving, acts of reaching out. And some of the reaching out was through writing. 
and knowing it helped others. Some of the reaching out was through the nonprofit we formed. Some of the reaching out were just through little things that we did to try to help other people. And I think both as a country and as a communities, that's how we find our way back, right? To better politics, to better community citizens, to a world and a community and a state house and a Congress that we can believe in is like little acts at a time. And when you think, oh my gosh, there's no repairing this. That's what I thought, right? I thought there was no repairing my heart. Um, but as it turns out, there's scars, but there there is hope. Thanks again to Governor Jane Swift for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Smith. Our producer is John Gee. Leave a rating and review wherever you're hearing us now if you want to help other folks find us. And email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.org if you ever want to get in touch directly. We'll be back in your ears next week. <laughs>